Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm Brian Kruger, the producer of this program, with a note about the following episode. We had some technical difficulties with the audio for Richard's guest today, Henry Ford Healthcare CEO, Mr. Wright Lassiter III. Now, we decided to run the episode as is because the content is very good. Now, we'll post a transcript of this episode on Substack, so search for The Common Bridge on Substack.com to read the interview in its entirety, and you can follow along with this interview as well. We now join Rich Helpy and Mr. Lassiter in progress. Welcome to The Common Bridge. This is your host, Rich Helpy. Welcome to Substack.com. Happy to have you join us on our subscription service today. Common Bridge is also available on most podcast outlets and on YouTube TV. Today, we have a special guest with us to talk about healthcare, something that affects everybody worldwide and particularly here in the United States. There's been a lot of reporting about healthcare. And in these divided and polarized time, I think we can agree that access to quality, affordable healthcare is a universal need. Yet most people don't understand this vast industry, which is the largest vertical market in the largest economy in the history of the world. So we're not going to be able to cover everything today. Uh, as you know, we've had other program experts and opinion makers such as Dean Clancy, Nate Kaufman, Brian Peters, Rob Casalou, Chris Allen, and others. And today on the Common Bridge, we welcome Mr. Wright Lassiter III. Uh, Mr. Lassiter is a distinguished healthcare executive with career experiences that run from coast to coast. And based on his accomplishments, he was elected chair of the American Hospital Association, which is the national organization that represents all types of hospitals and healthcare networks. I was going to say, speaking with us from uh, Detroit, Michigan today, the president and chief executive officer of the Henry Ford Health System and the chair-elect of the American Hospital Association, Mr. Wright Lassiter. Mr. Lassiter, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, I appreciate the wonderful uh, accolades uh, intro as you uh, started your broadcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Our audience likes to know something about our guests, so Tell us a little bit, where'd you grow up and what was some of your education and early experiences and what was the path that led you to the Henry Ford Health System? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, while I, uh, my voice probably doesn't sound like it anymore, I was born in the Deep South. I was born in Alabama, a little town that uh, became infamous uh, called Tuskegee, Alabama. And so my parents were both uh, affiliated with the local university there. And so uh, that's where my sister and I were born. and where I lived until I was about 12, and then we moved up the East Coast. And so uh, my dad was in education. So we moved from Alabama to Maryland and from Maryland to upstate New York. I finished high school in upstate New York and went to college there. And uh, while I was in college, my parents uh, migrated to Texas uh, for my dad's uh, career. And so much of my adult life was spent in Texas post-college. Uh, post um, and so in terms of education, um, uh, I grew up as a as a uh, Southern Baptist family, but went to a little Catholic uh, elementary school. Uh, finished uh, college uh, at a Jesuit uh, a Jesuit school in, in Syracuse, New York, and um, and always liked science and and, and math. And, and I got uh, never heard of healthcare administration, but I got uh, introduced to someone who who uh, gave me sort of a, an entree into the field. And that led me to do a little bit of work in healthcare initially and then go off and get a master's degree in healthcare administration. So uh, so I've been in healthcare now for about, uh, I guess, going on my 32nd year in healthcare. And uh, again, began my career in Texas and spent the first uh, nearly 15 years of my career in Texas. Um, I spent almost a decade on the West Coast um, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, running a, a public health system there for almost a decade, and uh, and got lured to the Midwest and and uh, at the end of 2014, and joined Henry Ford Health System 
um, as its as its president initially, and then uh, about a year later, president and CEO. So, and I understand you've done some uh, some recruiting, bringing some other talent to Detroit. Because, if I understand correctly, your college basketball coach was John Beeline. Of course, that was you know, your first influence on the state of Michigan, and and now you brought him to Detroit as a director of player development for the Detroit Pistons, just in time for another championship run for the Pistons. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, uh, John's done a great job in his career and, and was a great impact on me in college. And, and what I said to the Pistons is that, you know, when I moved to uh, California and began uh, being affiliated with the Warriors a few years after that affiliation, they won a national championship. And so I, I mean, won an NBA championship, excuse me. So I'm looking forward to the Pistons returning to their glory with the NBA championship as well. So. But that'll be great. And we'll all be, you know, given that, that chant of Detroit basketball. Absolutely. We can't wait for those days to, uh, to return. Uh, Henry Ford is known as a leader in community health, and our audience needs to understand how and why the health systems are focused on improving health status beyond the traditional role of diagnostic and treatment, but, you know, before something goes wrong with you. So can you maybe talk to our audience about some of those changes that, that you've been an integral part of leading? So, you know, here, here's what, what folks should understand. Um, America's hospitals and health systems do an amazing job uh, responding to crisis, responding to uh, critical needs. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, for your health and health status, are not things that happen within the four walls of the hospital. They're things that happen well outside that. Uh, it's it's um, you know it's issues related to environments, issues related to uh, social status, issues related to access to food and clean water, um, mm. it's, it's educational status. And it's, it's a number of things that, frankly, have nothing to do with what happens in the four walls of a hospital, emergency department, et cetera. And so I think that, you know, America's hospitals and health systems have, have, a, uh, have a lot of motivation, frankly, to, to help the communities they serve focus on health and wellness, not just focus on responding when you come to an emergency department, responding when you, when you come. To, to a physician's office. Um, and so we're very focused on, you know, evaluating um, community health needs. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, not-for-profit health systems are required to do is to complete on, on a regular basis a community health needs assessment. And so what that allows us to do is to talk with stakeholders and understand what are the health needs in communities. And when you understand what those needs are, uh, what you'll realize is that uh, the four walls of a hospital are critically important when something goes wrong. Uh, but given that America is a country that spends more on healthcare than any other nation in, in the world, um, one of the ways we can address that is by getting ahead of, getting upstream, getting ahead of when you become sick and helping, um, helping our, our nation's populace uh, focus on health, focus on prevention, and would say that Henry Ford, because not only do we have hospitals and clinics and surgery centers and doctor's offices, those kinds of things, but we also operate um, a large uh, insurance company called Health Alliance Plan. And so that gives us even further incentive to work with, with the members of Health Alliance Plan and the communities we serve in, in Southeast Michigan and Michigan broadly to focus on health and prevention as well. Are you able to mention anything about the American Hospital Association and how that fits in? And, and, and are other health systems facing these same challenges and, and trying to meet these same objectives? And so the short answer is yes. You know, um, the American Hospital Association. One of the great benefits that I've uh, that I've had in, in being part of the board for a number of years, and, and now serving as as the chair of the organization, is to help drive uh, the strategy and the strategic plan for the organization. Obviously, our first uh, our first objective is to advocate on behalf of America's hospitals and health systems to ensure that that all the communities in the country have what it needs from a from a health from a hospital and health system perspective. Uh, but one of the other significant uh, roles for the American Hospital Association is to assist America's hospitals with the kinds of um, change evolution that's necessary to to meet to meet uh, the, the needs of our of our country as we as we evolve. And so, um, absolutely, we have um, the American Hospital Association has, for instance, um, a, a group called uh, the Systems Leadership Council. That group brings together the largest health systems around the, around the country 
um, all of which are focused on on the things that I just mentioned, all of which call themselves integrated health systems that, that have physicians, hospitals, clinics, uh, home care services, uh, telemedicine services, uh, and all of those organizations um, and hundreds of them are, are very focused on how do we how do we how do we function as a great hospital operating company, but how do we also function as a as a organization that partners with this community around health, wellness, and prevention? And so that is one of our strategic frameworks uh, for the American Hospital Association. Well, I'm glad you're using the word partnerships because for people outside the industry, healthcare is kind of baffling. Where does the insurance company fit in? How does my doctor integrate? And what's this rehab facility that I'm going to after my surgery? Talk to us broadly a little bit. Where do hospitals fit in? What are some of the stresses for hospitals? How are some of the other industry participants doing? You know, there's big pharma out there. There's insurance companies out there, which you've got your own there, but there are other commercial payers and such. And what's changed during the pandemic among all those players? I know it's kind of a broad question, but just kind of give a little background for our our people. Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. At Substack.com, search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. Yeah, well, you know, there's a saying, um, there's a saying uh, that many people have heard that says, you know, never waste, uh, never waste a good crisis. And so I think that, um, when you face crises, it's a time when you can hopefully see the best of, of each other, uh, the best of companies, the best of industries, the best of humanity. And so, you know, as you ask the question about, you know, how, how does this complex web of hospitals, health systems, insurance companies, pharma, et cetera, fit, fit all fit together? You know, I, I would say a couple of things. You know, I think that um, during, during the pandemic, um, some of the greatest collaboration that was seen was was an understanding that um, the cost that that Americans would bear for COVID uh, support was likely going to create significant financial harm for for many individuals across the country. Indeed, so what you saw in many cases was uh, insurance companies uh, uh, waiving. Uh, Co-insurance related to to COVID care, um, waiving um, um, fees related to uh, COVID testing, um, and so that certainly was a was a great benefit to uh, to the citizens of of, of the United States. Um, what it also did, though, in partnership with the federal government, didn't mean though that if, that if hospitals were expending all those resources, they wouldn't get revenue for that. Um, and so there was a, a pretty great partnership there. You know, you clearly saw this sort of race to uh, to to the finish line with with big pharma as it related to solving solving the crisis of the day, which is we have a we have a we have a virus which is infecting the world, um, not just America's but the world's pharmaceutical companies need to figure out how do we how do we have a, a solution to that. And so you know, many people while 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 the uh, whole process of, of the pharmaceutical manufacturers creating drugs and the research around that is, is baffling to most people in the United States. But what we saw clearly was a period of time where we had uh, vaccinations, which, which I know is, is still a, a, uh, a dicey subject in, in, in some and maybe many parts of the country, but, but like it or not, and this is, you know, in my mind, an apolitical statement. We got drugs to market the fastest that we likely have seen in any period in history. And so, Absolutely, yes. so that was a combination of a lot of people doing good work, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, researchers outside of that area, obviously the federal government, uh, the regulatory bodies, who at times people criticize that maybe in the United States they take too long to approve things uh, for folks to use, you know, slower than in, in other parts of the world. So I think you saw there, you know, with, with the, the host of pharmaceutical companies who put a lot of money, time, and research into what can we do to provide a solution for, um, for America and for the world. 
Um, and then I would say, you know, another partnership that works really well, works really well during the pandemic. So Henry Ford, for instance, served as a uh, vaccine clinical trial site for two of what, what were ultimately the, the four approved uh, vaccines for, uh, for Americans. Um, and then you saw a number of hospitals and health systems around the country who had an ability, had the wherewithal to serve as, as enrollment sites uh, who were involved in clinical trial research, serve as places for enrollment for, uh, for those critical vaccine trials. That's a place of great collaboration between the pharmaceutical industry and America's hospitals and health systems because we are on the ground and able to enroll folks. Uh, one of the reasons that, that Henry Ford uh, was so sought after was because we have a pretty rich patient population, a very diverse patient population. And so we can provide, in some cases, you know, that 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 um, clinical uh, those clinical subjects that you might not see in some parts of the country to make sure that they're testing, you know, their potential new drugs on all of uh, varieties of, of genetic complements in the in the country, right? So. So that's another place where I would say there has been great, uh, great collaboration. Uh, and so I really appreciate you asking that question because oftentimes we spend more time just talking about what we don't agree when, when hospitals don't agree with, you know, how much reimbursement they're getting to cover their costs from an insurance company or when the pharmaceutical companies are, are, are at odds with, you know, with health systems about X. Um, and so this is a great time to sort of talk about how we can work, how we work well together and hopefully how we can, we can use that as a way to work better together going forward. Well, I, I share your optimism and I saw the pandemic, obviously a horrible event, but as a catalyst for some things, like we probably, we'll get into it today if you wish, a, a little bit about payment systems, about data systems, about uh, disparities in care that we've seen and you know, throughout various patient populations and the impact on the supply chain and frankly, the impact on a very important part of the employment sector and that your personnel and your staff feeling the brunt of supply chain, perhaps not getting them all the PPE they needed. They literally were healthcare heroes in the workforce. How's your workforce doing today? And what are you hearing from around the country about the clinicians, the nurses, the people that maintain the facilities? How are things going? You know, so I would just say, you know, being very honest with you, um, it, it is a challenging time uh, for uh, America's healthcare workers, and whether they be clinical or whether they support those in clinical roles. You use the term heroes, and I would just say f first and foremost that, that on a daily basis, we see examples of her heroism throughout America's hospitals and health systems with those folks who continue to lean in to do the work, to do the business of, of healthcare today. Um, but the short answer is uh, most of, of the folks who work in our facilities and in our hospitals and health systems never had the experience that they that they have had since January of 2020 uh, unless they unless they're veterans and spend time on the front line of a war uh, and obviously you know uh, you're not dodging bullets necessarily you know on the front line you know when you're dealing with healthcare but what they were dealing with initially was was this unknown invisible assailant that when when the coronavirus uh, first hit at our shores, we didn't know much about it. And uh, and so they're beleaguered, uh, they're tired. Uh, in some cases, they're frustrated. Um, you know, particularly some of our clinical uh, team members um, gets, gets frustrated at times by the volume of patients who, times they believe, uh, have a way to, to, uh, to have not, to not be in the situation they're in if, if maybe they made a different, different choice. Um, so, so they're they're tired. They're worn out. Um, they're in a place where at times they feel underappreciated. Um, um, and you know, as we talk about the great resignation in the United States, with folks who are making different decisions about about do they work anymore? Do they work in the they're in? Do they find a job where they can work from home and not have to go be exposed to you know to invisible viruses and and, and the like? We're seeing all those stressors. I would say that, you know, in our organization, we've seen a 600% increase in uh, our team members requesting employee assistance through our various employee assistance programs. Um, that is just, that is a sign of, of trauma. That is a sign of, of, uh, 
resilience uh, being less than it than you would want it to be. Um, and in some parts of the healthcare system, people are choosing to leave it and not come back. Um, in other cases, people are saying, you know what, I, I'm 58 and I planned to work until I was 65. I think I'm done. My, my family and I have decided we're going to live differently, um, but I'm not going to do this anymore because it's, it's too stressful. Uh, so, you know, folks who sit in chairs like mine, we spend a lot of our time, you know, talking to our leadership teams about, so how can we better support our team members? Because what they need from us today is something different than what they needed three years ago. Um, you know, I think most most folks sitting in a chair like mine would have said that we thought we were doing a pretty good job in most organizations of providing the kind of support that your team members need to be their best at work. And, um, and in and, and, and our organization, and frankly, I would say that in most organizations today, not all, but in most organizations, PPE is certainly not the issue. You know, supply chain isn't the reason people are stressed. It, it is just the, 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 the fact that um, you've been, you've been uh, on platoon duty sort of nonstop for now going on, you know, three years. And, and, uh, and you're, you're looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, and every time you think you see it, you realize that there's another train barreling down at, barreling down the tracks at you, and and uh, what I think most folks want is just a break. And potentially, there's not a break coming because during the pandemic, with so much resource devoted to battling COVID, your associates and your staff members suffering from the stresses and strains of mental health. It's exploding elsewhere in the communities. We've had deferred care for prevention and for you know acute cancers. So it doesn't sound like it's going to get any easier. And I can't even imagine what the leadership challenges would be for you and your peers around the country. So, you know, what I would say to you is, is, is this, um, as a, I think the leadership imperative is to continue to try to do a couple things at the same time, which can be challenging. It is to to be honest and transparent with with the team that's doing the work on what you see around the corner and how you're preparing your organization to support them as best as you possibly can, based upon what you see around the corner. Um, if what you see around the corner is is something that's that's scary and that's that's ghastly and and that's worrisome, uh, it's helpful to be as as honest as you possibly can around that so that you don't give people false, false hope and false expectations. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we do within our organization, and I would say that, that many large organizations do today is um, share with the teams what they're seeing on the epidemiology front around where do we see the waves? Do we think the waves is, mm-hmm. is uh, moderating? Do we think, do we think we're about to go back into a wave? And so we, we publish pretty regularly and, we have team members who, who will do an internal podcast or internal video uh, message to the team. And in some cases, it comes from me, but in more cases, it comes from, from some of our clinical team just sort of sharing, you know, here's what we're seeing in the community. Here's what we're seeing across Michigan. Uh, the next two to three weeks, here's what we're sort of expecting so that people have a bit of a sense of, okay, I got it, as opposed to I walk in hoping it's going to be fine and I get hit by a bus. And it's like, well, Jesus, if someone had told me that there was a bus barreling down the street, I could have prepared for it. Uh, maybe I could have stepped aside. When I think about things like the disparities in healthcare, um, yeah. with so much of the pandemic's worst effects being on people with complications and comorbidities, and perhaps those people weren't getting preventive care. What have we learned as a nation and as a healthcare delivery system about disparities that or maybe maybe I, you knew them, but what has the general public learned about the disparities in healthcare during this time? Yeah, I think that um, I really appreciate that question um, because I think what it highlights is the fact that we have to talk more broadly about the health inequities that exist across our country, and we've got to do more. We've got to be more aggressive at resolving them. What COVID showed us. Uh, was what already existed, and that is that um, when you have when you have um, certain portions of the population that have a greater chance of of preponderance of of comorbidities, of diabetes, of hypertension, of food insecurity, of lack of transportation to get to a doctor's visit, lack of access, 
and, and that's not just in urban settings, it's, it's in rural settings, um, mm-hmm. in, in, small, in, in small rural settings, small town rural settings where you have to drive 100 miles or more to get to a primary care doctor or to get to a specialist or to get to an emergency department. I mean, what it's really taught us is that we, we have to address some of the fundamental underpinnings of, of, uh, of health and wellness in our country because um, we are vulnerable and COVID just simply exposed what was already there, what many public health professionals um, and those who focus on health equity and disparities would have said all along, which is we have many populations that suffer more than they should in a country that has as many resources as the United States has. And we, we can and should do better. I'm glad you brought up the, the resources because, and by the way, in my humble opinion, and you can disagree or endorse it or modify it if you wish, yep. but it occurred to me that during the pandemic, a time when we most needed our healthcare providers, not only for the care of the pandemic, but also for everything else that didn't stop, cancers, broken bones, car accidents, and the like, had we stayed on the same payment system and not intervened as a federal government, our hospitals and health systems would have been bankrupted. That during the time most needed, they would have gone away. And I wonder, could we design payment methods any worse than the ones we have today? Financing of healthcare is obviously wildly complicated. And there's, there's, there's probably a very few people who would just say that they love it um, or that they fully understand it. Um, uh, our system is one that is predicated, as, as you know, on uh, being paid more, more than not on what you do someone and not necessarily for how how you're able to keep them well um, you're absolutely correct that uh, the nation's uh, hospitals and healthcare systems are are quite vulnerable with a large percentage of them who who are uh, only barely financially viable and when we went through a pandemic as we did and you shut down so much of the elective surgeries elective activity and even some basic basic hospital activity, uh, those, those organizations that were vulnerable, teetering on the edge of, of, um, of not being able to stay, to stay solvent. Um, so not unlike your prior question of um, what did the pandemic teach us about the reimbursement system, the, the financial incentives of healthcare, um, Highlighted is what many, many in the industry already knew and many public policy folks, uh, the financing folks knew, which is um, we're on a little bit of a house of cards system in our country. Uh, and it relates to, to reimbursement and financing of health care. Um, if you ask me the question, well, so, so, so what's the way to redesign it? You know, what I would tell you is that's, a, that's such a, that's a complicated question that we don't have enough time today to, to address. Um, clearly, we've got to get to a place to where uh, there's more incentive for partnering with people to help keep them healthy than simply doing stuff to them once they when they get ill. Now, obviously, we cannot remove from the system fair reimbursement um, for the health industry when you respond to someone's critical health emergency or critical uh, need for restoration of health. But there's got to be more. Uh, attention and incentive paid to partnering with individuals to prevent prevent illness and to create healthy and, and wellness uh, lifestyles. And if if there were sufficient incentive there, then you would see more activity. A, a case in point is, is this, Rich. Um, the federal government put in place a uh, an enhanced reimbursement system for telemedicine during the COVID-19 and so depending upon the organization, Henry Ford, for instance, was already doing a lot of telemedicine, but, but our activity increased uh, almost 1,500% at its peak during uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and to this day, we're still doing significantly more than we did before. Um, and that was across the industry, you would see similar kinds of data points. That was in large part because... One, you couldn't have people in your facilities given the spread of potential spread of the virus, uh, and so we adapted. 
But the federal government also put in place an incentive that said, we're not going to penalize you any longer for delivering uh, a health interaction virtually versus in person. And so, uh, and that still exists today, even though most of the country, if not all the country, has reopened itself to elective surgeries, all the kinds of things that would allow someone to come into a facility. And so what has happened, there's been a little bit of, of, of um, equilibrating of that back to more in-person visits. But most healthcare systems with the capabilities are doing a lot more virtual medicine still to this day than they were three years ago. And that's primarily because there was the, the disincentives um, were removed such that you would get reimbursed equally for an in-person visit versus virtual medicine. So one of the things that, for instance, the American Hospital Association advocated uh, um, uh, strongly about was you've got to give the healthcare industry the incentive to see people digitally because people can't come into into our facilities or they're nervous about coming into a facility. And so don't don't pay us you know ten cents on the dollar for a virtual visit and then pay a dollar for an in-person visit. Uh, make that more equal. And and I think that. that that's one example of a host of perverse incentives in the reimbursement and financing of, of America's healthcare that, frankly, causes um, uh, behaviors that that uh, aren't always in, in the best interest of, of our, our country. Well, I, I'm in uh, strong agreement with you on that. Um, telemedicine, I think, is so appropriate. You think about we don't pay extra to go. Uh, into a branch bank. We can do a lot of the banking off of our phones. But it also calls out one of those disparities that you can't do telemedicine unless you have access to a device and broadband. And, yeah. you know, just, you know, decades ago, there was a federal legislation for universal telephone service. And now I think universal broadband service is just essential and one of the things we talk about on this program are, you know, what some of the policy responses should be. Broadband can't be a place for the privilege. It has to be a place for everybody because it relates directly to quality of life, quality of health care. And then as we begin to address those root causes of some of the health care maladies, nutrition, housing, and the like. You probably tell them I'm a forever optimist that we can get ahead of, of any problem. One of the things that I think has come to light uh, during this time is the public health system. And you ran a big public health system. You're in a city that has a fairly robust public health system. Any view on how the public health system was good about supporting pandemic response or places that maybe said, you know what, we need to maybe strengthen it in some areas. So this is an area that I would say, you know, uh, Brett Lasser's opinion about this is is pretty clear. And that is that um, the public health infrastructure in the United States is, is underwhelming. And, and it's one of the, it's one of the areas where we really need significant more investment um, I think if you, when you look across the country, what you what you will see is that uh, municipalities and states that had stronger investments in public health had more tools to offer their citizens at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, uh, and it's why you at times saw you saw different uh, understanding in some states uh, for what was happening and what wasn't happening. Um, take contact tracing, for instance. Early on, when we really didn't fully understand the virus, contact tracing was extremely important because we had no tools. We didn't have vaccines, didn't have monoclonal antibodies, didn't have, didn't have drugs. So, so all we really had was uh, find a way to stay away from someone who has it. You know, by the way, this is an invisible virus that at times people are asymptomatic. And so you don't have a good way of, of even staying away from folks early on, right? And, and so... And so one of the best tools that you might have available during a public health crisis with a respiratory virus is contact tracing. Um, I would say that 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 was effectively done, effectively done in probably no more than a quarter of the country, uh, primarily because there was not there is not a robust public health infrastructure across much of our country. Now, some states and some cities have, have done it better. 
know, we had a very strong partnership with the city of Detroit um, and with Mike Duggan, the mayor. Uh, we embedded um, our chief of, of infectious disease into the into the mayor's cabinet to assist him uh, and and the city of Detroit's public health department uh, with uh, infectious disease expertise and with with uh, with thinking medical advice around how to strategy development and strategy deployment and and problem solving. Um, there were a number of health systems that did very similar things in, in other localities, whether that's in Michigan or outside of Michigan. Um, and so, and so I would, would just would tell you that um, uh, you've got to continue to focus uh, on beating up public health infrastructure across the country uh, because we, we weren't equipped as much as we should have been. When you, when early on, when the vaccines were first being approved, um, in many places, the entity that was doing more vaccination administration were hospitals and health systems. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is the first time in in our history that hospitals and health systems, as opposed to doctor's office and public health venues, um, were the nidus for administration of vaccines. You know, oftentimes, vaccines are done in pediatric population. And so most vaccines are generally done in a a doctor's office or in a a public health clinic, not necessarily in hospitals. But in this crisis, you had America's hospitals uh, doing mass vaccination clinics, um, being the oversight in in, stadiums and Cobo Hall and and places like that to to have that done. and what I would say to you is that I think the America's hospitals and health systems did that eagerly and and saw that as our our role in that crisis. That wasn't necessarily something that we'd ever done before, but we did it. Um, and some would say, well, is that good, bad, or indifferent? And what I would say is if there was an, adic- an adequate public health infrastructure, hospitals would have been a complement to that, not the lead. Um, and I'd say generally speaking, Hospitals probably aren't the best place to do mass vaccination, but in a crisis, everybody leans in and you do what you have to do until you get through the crisis. So I hope that that I got my uh, vaccine through the the health system and they did a great job of really a absolute de novo build of an outreach to the community, um, the way they segregated the population into the high risk got your appointment, got in, got your follow-up, got your second shot. They did a, a just a, a terrific job. And that leads me to one of the things very near and dear to me is the data systems in healthcare. And, you know, to your point about public health being probably inadequate at this point and some of the coordination and with all the participants, it seems that we should be doing a lot better job on interconnected data systems. If I'm, you know, unconscious and brought into one of your facilities, you know, I sure want you to know what my medical history is and, you know, what allergies I might have and so forth. What's the thinking at the system level or perhaps at the American Hospital Association level about the need for data systems? Yeah, well, so I would say that um, no one would disagree with the comment you just made, which is uh, no matter where you are, if you if you suffer some serious uh, critical uh, clinical uh, issue, that the physicians who are taking care of you need access to as as complete as possible your medical history to be able to uh, to manage your care as as possible. Um, I think that. Uh, Probably the lay the lay person may or may not have heard the term epic, or they've heard that in some in some uh, uh, in some uh, context different than than what I would mention. But you know, in 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 the hospital health system world, there are really two there are really two dominant uh, infra, uh, information technology platforms: Epic, which is you know by far the market leader, and I'd say probably two thirds of hospitals and health systems have have Epic as their as their clinical platform, and Cerner. Um, the good news about about Epic's market share is that um, there is the ability, if you're an Epic user, 
to share data, uh, frankly, across the country. And so, and so if you're on the Epic platform and you have you have enabled your system and signed up for the various data sharing portals that are that are available, um, it's it's pretty easy uh, that if you live in Michigan but you're you're vacationing in Montana and you have a, you have an accident and you go into a facility that's an Epic shop, it's pretty easy for them to have access to to your MyChart. Uh, that might be resident in the state of Michigan. So that's not particularly difficult because now we've put in place a number of, uh, you know, um, uh, HIEs, health information exchanges, and, and RIEs, regional uh, health information exchanges that allows that allows that the inner, uh, the, the sharing of that data. Um, I would just say that um, it is not quite as seamless between two competing uh, information technology platforms uh, to share data as it is uh, within one. Uh, and so work needs to be done there. There's been a lot of work in the last decade or so around trying to um, overcome the barriers to competitiveness um, and to just focus on the highest priority ought to be delivering the best possible care to, to that individual. And so let's forget about uh, let's forget about uh, competition uh, because if if your data is your data, you own it. And so you ought to be able to sort of carry it around with you and have it available to any to any caregiver that you that you'd give access to. And so that's not as seamless as, as having a you know a chip, you know, a chip that someone can access or a, you know some sort of data file that someone can access in the event that you uh, that you have an issue. Uh, but I would say it's it's better, today than it was a decade ago, but there's still more work to be done to ensure that data is shared seamlessly across any corner of, of, of our country in the event that, that you have a, a serious clinical need and your caregivers need to give it to you. What they don't need is to have to make, you know, 10 phone calls um, trying to figure out how to get to your data. And if you're unconscious, you can't give them the access to your MyChart account to be able to download your data. And and I will just say that, you know, at one point there were these Companies that were sort of selling access, selling you know the health vaults and and the various tools that uh, would allow you to sort of carry your data around with you, and and those have not uh, been I think as as popular or as um, as well uh, subscribed as they might have thought. And so you know ultimately the cloud is the way the way to go to get access to the data in a secure way to make sure that. That you have it, and anyone that you want to have it can get it, but not, but not anyone else to use that data against you. Exactly, and I think interoperability. I know there's a subgroup at uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid yes. Management working on that, and it should not be a purview of a single company or even a couple of companies. If you look around, every place else we deal with information. You know, there's an ATM nearby. It's around the world. You get your data instantly it crosses all kinds of platforms not that hard to do we've interconnected uh, many other types of systems and it's always a disruptor coming in from the cloud that gets the resident data versus the resident data being kept in and you have to go find out where it is probably a, a bigger topic for another day and uh, we actually have been talking about having a common bridge panel discussion and in person to talk about payment reform and such. And if, if we get that set up, I, I'd love to have you be a part of that panel as well. Okay. Um, okay. A lot of fun, a lot of other smart people on the, the panel that know a few things. Uh, Mr. Laster, you are in very highly influential positions at, at this incredibly complex and difficult time. I'm happy we have people with your experience and your credentials and your obvious energy for this. Do you have a vision for maybe what does healthcare look like in the next 10 years? You know, here's what I would, what I would say. I, I think that, that um, healthcare needs to be um, viewed as um, ubiquitous, consumer-oriented, safe, available to all, and affordable. Um, 
And, and, you know, some might get nervous when you say ubiquitous, so that would mean that, my goodness, well, we spend a lot of money already on healthcare. So what does ubiquitous mean? We're going to spend twice as much. And I don't, you know, my sense is we spend all the money we need to spend on healthcare today. We just need to spend it in different places. Um, um, and in some cases, focus on, on, on different, different problems uh, more than we do today. Um, but we clearly, healthcare clearly has to ensure that it's, that it never compromises the the quality and safety and the and the needs of uh, of, of of our citizenry. Um, I'm a firm believer that that everyone who's here in our in our country needs to have access to, to high quality and affordable health care because without it 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 has numerous deleterious effects that are much broader than healthcare. I mean, if you, if you don't have good health, you're not able to contribute to, to society in a meaningful way. Right? And so, so my belief is that it's, it's in our best interest to ensure that folks have access to high quality affordable care um, so they can be their best selves, whatever, you know, whatever that God given ability is. Right. Um, <clears throat> um, I think that, that healthcare is going to have to do in the next decade is um, con- constantly uh, reevaluate where and how it's where and how it's 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 provided. Um, we're going to have to to be able to, uh, in many cases, rely less on brick and mortar and more on, on other ways of providing that care. Um, you've you've harped a couple of ca- on a couple of occasions around around uh, data and technology, and so we're going to have to use data and technology better in the next decade than we than we've used in the last decade. Um, to understand who you are and what your needs are better, um, we're going to have to use you know artificial intelligence and machine learning um, in a, in a robust way to improve efficiency and effectiveness of of our services. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of applications that say that you can use those technologies to reduce unnecessary care, but also to help to help extend the human brain to be able to solve problems that we just can't solve. Um, but the place where we have not used it as much in the last decade that we need to use that those technologies more in the coming decade is how to better deploy healthcare talent. Um, when we know that that um, we have the same way we spent time focusing on supply chain at the beginning of the pandemic, as we as we hopefully now uh, come to the back end of our pandemic, we now have to focus on healthcare talent, our healthcare supply pipeline, like we like we did uh, at the beginning of the pandemic on our on our personal protective equipment and ventilator and other kinds of supply chain because we've had a lot of folks who have decided to leave the industry um, and we have pressure to try to deliver the same care um, with 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 a, with a um, with a bench that has less people on it um, so I think that we can deploy um, AI and machine learning in ways that helps us deploy talent better, that ensures that, that we are fully utilizing people at the top of their license and credentials and skill sets. Um, and in some cases, we're deploying folks who, uh, who are not at the bedside, obviously in virtual settings in a way that leverages them more than, than we could do in the, in the prior decade. So I think that that's going to be uh, really critically important. I'm glad you mentioned talent. And for everyone listening, healthcare is an extremely rewarding career. I can't think of anything more noble than taking care of ill and sick and injured people. And and I love the words, helping people live their best life through good health. And, you know, look, if you're a Got the talent to be a clinician, great. Maybe you're a computer nerd like me, but I came to healthcare because of the mission. And there are lots of support jobs. We need people to greet people, to transport people, to clean the facilities. There's many ways that people can participate in this largest and most important industry. Mr. Lasser, you've been a very great guest today. We told our audience at the beginning we can't cover everything because of the breadth of this topic. Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to make mention of? And and perhaps, you know, what would you recommend people do today to uh, make the most of their health and their healthcare system. Yeah, no, I'd love to end on that. So, you know, if you say, what can people do today? Well, you know, first I'd say to folks, get, get the facts about the, the 
positive impact of, of getting vaccinated. Um, I worry daily about the number of unvaccinated individuals who are in our hospitals and who are suffering greatly. Um, I, I fully understand and respect the fact that um, that it's a it's a choice that an individual has to come to uh, based on what they believe is best for themselves and, and their families. Uh, but frankly, uh, our staff our staff sees the unfortunate outcome of folks who who have not come to that decision. And so that first thing I would say is avail yourself of whatever information you need to, um, to hopefully be able to make that decision because we are losing a lot of folks who like to not lose. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, second thing I would say is that, um, you know, ultimately um, you are, you are um, the biggest driver uh, for your own health and wellness. Um, health systems can be a great partner. Um, uh, your physicians, uh, you know, our therapists, our counselors, they can all, we can all be great partners. Um, but, but you as an individual are, are, are a great driver of, of your, uh, of your health and wellness. And so allow us to help partner with you so that you can live your best self, um, through, through, through health and, and well-being. Um, hospitals are, are, um, will be there for you when there's a crisis. We can also be there for you when there's not a crisis that helps you be healthier today, tomorrow, and beyond. And so we're here to partner with you for that, and we wish you the best. That is a great finale to our talk today. Uh, we've been talking with Mr. Wright Lassiter III. He is the president and chief executive of the Henry Ford Health System of Detroit, Michigan. And because of his illustrious career, he has been elected the chair of the American Hospital Association. We wish you very strong success in both those roles because they're critical to all of us. This is Rich Helpy on Substack's Common Bridge. Please go to substack.com, look up Common Bridge and subscribe. And this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved by Richard